Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Ross, and I'll be your guide to explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from our Missouri. To help prepare for this year's Missouri Conference on History, the Our Missouri podcast invites listeners to meet us in St. Louis for a multi-part series focusing on several projects and institutions that document that city's history and cultural identity. Our guest today is Tracy Campbell. He is the E. Vernon Smith and L. Louise C. Smith Professor of American History at the University of Kentucky, and he received a Ph.D. from Duke University. He is the author of books such as The Politics of Despair, Power and Resistance in the Tobacco Wars, Short of the Glory, The Fall and Redemption of Edward F. Pritchard Jr., Delivered the Vote, A History of Election Fraud and American Political Tradition, 1742 to 2004, and The Gateway Arch, A Biography. Welcome to the Our Missouri Podcast, Tracy. Well, thanks for having me. Could you tell us a little about the origins of the project uh, revolving the uh, Gateway Arch? Well, uh, it was kind of a eureka moment when I was doing another book. I was doing a book on uh, election fraud, as you had mentioned, and I was, I don't even remember the day, but I was going through the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and saw that there was a, a series of Pulitzer Prize winning articles about a bond issue election, how it was stolen in 1935. So I thought, well, I guess I'd better go look at that, not thinking that anyone would care about a bond issue election. And so when I got inside of it and saw that it involved the Jefferson National Expansion Memorial, um, a bell kind of went off in my head. And I started thinking, wow, there is something more than meets the eye about the Gateway Arch. And it literally started at that moment of kind of germinating in my head about the idea of wonder what else is there. And so when I went to St. Louis to do some research, I would find myself, you know, taking a little break and looking over at the other part about whether it was Errol Saarinen or the Arch and found myself just thinking maybe one day I ought to do a book about it. And that's how it kind of got started. Interesting. Now, we can think of the Arch as a, as a uh, obviously a physical landmark, but the history of it involves a lot of archival materials. So where were you going yeah. for these archival materials and what were you looking at? Well, if you're going to do a story about the arch itself, you have to look at the city of St. Louis. If you're going to do that, you need to look at uh, the story of the architect. That led me to other places. I have to look at the process, the political process that built it. And so whether it was, you know, Starnan's papers at Yale, uh, National Park Service records in Washington, uh, a variety of records throughout Missouri, um, you know, I found myself looking at some really fascinating stories. Um, one in particular, maybe your students would like to know, because I tell my students this a lot. I went to a small library looking for some material in an architecture library, and I struck out. I couldn't find anything. And before I left, I thought, I'm just going to spend a little bit of time and see if I can find anything at all so my trip's not a complete waste. Saw this little pamphlet 
I looked inside. There was an article about Errol Saarinen written by uh, a California architect named uh, Per Luigi Saraino. And it was this fascinating psychological portrait that had been done of Saarinen that he had participated in in the late 1950s at Berkeley. Well, I went back to my office. I looked up the architect. I sent him a quick email and saying, you know, is there a way I might be able to find this? What's the lead? And within, I'd say, 10 minutes in my inbox pops this huge attachment that he had sent me the PDF file of this psychological portrait. And it just came out of nowhere. And there I was in the afternoon looking at some of this really interesting material about Tharn and psychological makeup, things that he had participated in. And I had no idea that the day started that I would find anything like that. That's quite interesting to think about. In looking at the arch today, certainly we know of the structure and of the park and the museum mm-hmm. that is there, but the prehistory of that, there is certainly an entire you know community, buildings, industries that existed before the arch's construction. So Take us back to this earlier era when that area was not so much known for a a landmark, but more so for business and industry. Well, it's some of the most contested property really in the United States. It was uh, a typical riverfront area that you could see in cities along rivers like, say, Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, on and on and on. Uh, It had a lot of great cast iron buildings. It had hundreds and hundreds of businesses, the notion that it was blighted or completely, uh, you know, an area that needs to be swept away. The evidence showed that over 5,000 people were working there in the height of the depression in a series of small businesses, fur trading companies, restaurants. There were places where people, of course, lived and shopped. And so it was an area that certainly wasn't as thriving as it had been before the depression, but there were a lot of people who were living there and obviously did not like the fact that they were going to be forced off their land in order to build uh, some kind of national park. So the, the thing that kind of got me was thinking about how our built environment always has a story behind it. There's usually a political story. There's usually an economic story. Um, there's always a human story. Uh, whether it's your neighborhood, uh, a shopping mall, a baseball park. And I always think it's important to start thinking, what was here before and what was the process by which the thing that we see today got there? And it usually involves power in some way. Now, thinking of the city in this kind of earlier era, what brought about the turn for not only city officials, but we could even say the residents of that city, to embrace the idea that something needed to go on this waterfront that was different than what already had existed, something for a park or a monument? Well, I think that was a long, complicated process. It certainly didn't happen overnight. Uh, The Great Depression has to be in there. A lot of cities dealt with how can we revitalize our city. I also thought there were real estate interests that were seeing declining property values and wondering how to go about changing that. And how do you kind of rebuild a city that is in trouble, that's losing population, that's losing people to the outer areas? And it took a lot of different people over many, many years to get to the moment where in the late 1940s, there was a competition to put uh, a national park there. There are people like Luther Ely Smith, Bernard Dickman, and many others who 
played a crucial role in that in helping think in helping uh, St. Louis think about a very different kind of future on that on that riverbank. But it was fun going back and looking say, at, a, at an old high school yearbook and seeing that some student had drawn a, a almost an exact replica of the arch in her mind back in the 1930s on this riverfront. So it had been germinating for a long time in a lot of people about what to do with the riverfront and how to make St. Louis uh, kind of this tourist beacon for a lot of people. Yeah, that was something I definitely picked up on was how uh, the theme of an arch comes out so frequently yeah. in so many ideas of either design or, as you mentioned, the kind of the yearbook element of something with an arched element yeah. needs to be on that riverfront or remembering the kind of westward expansion and things like that. Um, you mentioned yeah, the, that was something uh, oh. I was never expecting, but that's what sources can do. They can start leading you in places you never expect. And the number of times someone, whether it was a student, an engineer, or someone along the way had, produced, had, had thought about using that exact term, the gateway to the West, uh, kind of struck me as really odd. So that even though Sarnin dreamed of it and thought of it in the 1940s, uh, I think he would have been surprised to have seen how many other people had come up with something similar to it, but certainly not as graceful and beautiful as what he was thinking about. Before we return to our conversation, here's Danielle Griego with some information about upcoming events. The 62nd Annual Missouri Conference on History, hosted by Lindenwood University and sponsored by the State Historical Society of Missouri, will be held March 11th through the 13th, 2020 at the Doubletree by Hilton Hotel in Chesterfield. The Missouri Conference on History is dedicated to bringing together teachers and students of history to share research results, exchange information on teaching and curriculum, and to promote the value of the discipline. You can help the Missouri Conference on History grow and share your message with over 150 people as an exhibitor, by becoming a sponsor, and by purchasing an advertisement in the program. For more information about the Missouri Conference on History, please visit shsmo.org mch. Start networking with other history professionals now on social media by using hashtag MCH2020. National History Day in Missouri is looking for educators, historians, writers, filmmakers, museum staff, and community members to join them at this year's state contest to judge student projects. The state contest will be held on April 25, 2020 at the University of Missouri, Columbia. To thank you for your essential participation in National History Day, the State Historical Society of Missouri will provide a light breakfast and lunch plus a travel stipend of up to $50 for judges whose round-trip mileage exceeds 75 miles. National History Day in Missouri is a unique opportunity for middle and high school age students to explore the past in a creative, hands-on way by producing a documentary, exhibit, paper, performance, or website on a topic of their choosing. To learn more about National History Day in Missouri, including judge orientation and how to start a program at your own school, please visit shsmo.org slash nhdmo. Now, something else I'm, I'm thinking about as we're talking was you mentioned the, the fraud issue earlier on, and that was something that struck me too, was that, you know, for something that's so celebrated in, in more modern times to an extent, the fact that there was an election under dubious circumstances to clear that land is something that was quite fascinating. Can you tell us about, about that election? Well, it was a $30 million project, which in the 1930s is an enormous amount of money. And for the federal government to pony up its three-quarters share, the city had to come up with one-fourth, or in other words, $7.5 million. And in order to do that, according to Missouri law, the, the, the voters had to approve 
floating a bond of that size and had to do it by a two-thirds majority, a supermajority. So to get that kind of approval um, required a, 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 an extensive effort that Mayor Dickman knew that even though he could get a majority of the vote, it probably wouldn't be enough to get him over the threshold. So a lot of methods that had been used throughout the early 20th century, whether it's in cities like St. Louis or Louisville or Pittsburgh or, or New Orleans, was used to, you know, to get some fake registrants, uh, having empty buildings produce hundreds of votes. We could see precincts where the vote was unanimous. There wasn't even a, a single person who had voted against it, apparently. But there were a lot of folks who were against spending this kind of money and for a city to go into that kind of debt and not see anything for maybe over a decade. And so you can see why a lot, and also there were people who did not want to be moved from their homes or businesses. So uh, it probably wouldn't have passed had it been just a simple straight up vote, but it had to um, be subjected to some methods that were certainly not democratic, which as you mentioned is one of the ironic things about the, the Gateway Arch. So after this election, Certainly, as the city's embracing the idea of, of a monument, tell us about the competition that ultimately brought about the arch design uh, for the city. Well, it's a fascinating competition. I mean, it, it, it's one of the most unique uh, that I ever encountered. First of all, they could have just approached a, a leading architect, uh, you know, Mies van der Rohe, Frank Lloyd Wright, and said, do something really unique here. Instead, the city planners thought of a two-stage competition, not just one, but two, which might preclude, you know, some of the more famous architects getting involved in something like this. But the notion was we'll have a one stage and now five finalists go back to those finalists. They can then kind of retool or repackage their, their, um, their final version. And the winner would be awarded a $40,000 prize, an enormous amount of money. And so it attracted hundreds, I think altogether over 170 entries in thinking about what to do with this whole concept of a, of a riverfront project like this. After the first round, a local architect named Harris Armstrong, who was a really brilliant kind of innovative modernist architect from St. Louis, had more votes really than say Sarnet. And so it was really in the second round that Sarnan started thinking about the concept of a four-sided arch and turned it into a much more tapered three-sided approach, made it much more graceful, much more elegant. And he also wanted it to be something that would be seen from the highways that would be approaching from both sides. And it could really be something striking as you get within you know, 10 miles of the city. And so it was that two-stage process that eventually produced this winning design. And if you go, you know, over to uh, the old courthouse and look at some of the other designs in their second phase, you can see that there really wasn't a close second, that Sarnens was so striking and so unique that it was kind of an obvious, almost unanimous pick once they had finished with it. Now, of course, that leads to the question of, you know, who was and as as you mentioned, kind of the local, there was a local favorite, but yet this person from outside the state mm -hmm. wins. So who was he? 
I had no idea who he was until I got into this study, and he, I found him just kind of enthralling and, and a really fascinating character. You can't talk about Errol Saarinen without talking about his father, Elil, who was one of the great architects in the world. They were both from Finland outside of Helsinki. And Elil was actually probably one of the best-known architects of the early 20th century. They, they migrated to Michigan, and Errol wanted desperately to get out of the shadow of his father. Today, uh, Errol Sarnia is probably better known for his furniture design than he is any of his major buildings. He, he designed the TWA terminal at uh, Idlewild Airport, now Kennedy Airport. He designed the CBS building. But I imagine a lot of people would not know those buildings as well as they would some of his furniture designs, like a tulip chair that is still one of the more popular, expensive pieces of furniture you can buy. Um, a man who was obsessed with trying to outdo his father to make a name for himself um, was um, kind of driven by this this internal desire to make something. And then the, the irony is that even though the, the arch was this project that had taken years to to design, to, to think about, to get it to a point where it might be uh, built, he died before he could see it, it finished. It's it was his, his, his really his great love, but he never got to see it finalized. And certainly there's kind of others picking up the slack after his passing to kind of complete the project. Yes. Right. But, and kind of as we are thinking about the arch in kind of the, the foundational days, and then as it slowly rises up to completion, um, and we mentioned the earlier kind of ob somewhat objections to it with the clearing of the land, but there are criticisms mm -hmm. not only up to the point that the, two sides are linked together, but even in the immediate aftermath. Who, who's objecting to the Arch, and why, what are their criticisms? Uh, well, there were financial criticisms that this was an outrageous amount of money to spend on such an abstract, uh, kitschy kind of uh, tourist draw. There were some who uh, objected to uh, its design, that it was it wasn't as something as obvious as a a giant statue of a, of a pioneer pointing westward, as some people wanted. Uh, one of the, the earliest objections came from an Italian architect who said that Sarnen's design too closely resembled his one that he had that this architect named Libera had designed for uh, Benito Mussolini in Italy that was never built but was seen as a, a, a a triumph of, of fascism. So the, the design, whether it was considered a giant croquet wicket or the back door to the east or all kinds of other terms, you could see early on, like with most modernist designs, there were some immediate objections to it. But as, as it was being built, and obviously not long afterwards, it became kind of a beloved symbol of the city of which it is now, I think, you know, uniquely and justifiably proud of. One thing I was struck of with the with the criticisms, as you mentioned, was there's a civil rights element to the criticisms as well, aren't there? Of course. Um, well, back in 1935, the notion was that if if the bond issue were passed, that 5,000 jobs would immediately come to the city. Who in the world would oppose that kind of of employment status when uh, the city is struggling with unemployment? When the jobs finally came in the 1960s, not 
a single one went to someone of color. And so in the middle of the civil rights movement, the arch became kind of a symbol to local activists like Percy Green, who thought it was a symbol of something that had nothing to do with Thomas Jefferson or Westward Expansion, but to the kind of closed doors that many of the city's African-Americans face when trying to to get employment, to get a, a leg upward. So there was a protest involved in 1965 up one of the legs in which Percy Green and some other civil rights activists tried to shut down the construction for a while. And as I tried to outline the book, this really led to the Johnson administration thinking about terms of affirmative action and awarding federal contracts based on on other things besides, you know, who had the lowest bid. So, yeah, I, I think in looking at the Gateway Arch, you just can't see architecture. You just can't see engineering. You also have to see race. In looking at all the elements that you're discussing in this book, and, and certainly as I was looking mm-hmm. through it, I was quite fascinated by really the history of something that we see, but that we don't necessarily mm-hmm. know about. But what do you hope that readers take away from this book as they're going through it? Well, I hope that they'll see that, well, like I said before, whether it's their local neighborhoods or a building that they pass by every day, maybe stop and think what was here before and what was the process by which something, whether it's heinous or beautiful, was created. And it usually involved political power, economic power. And the questions of who won and who lost, there's usually a struggle as to bringing something to fruition like this. And so I think those stories can tell us a lot about a city's history as well as the country's history in looking at our built environment. Thank you very much for joining us today. I certainly enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests, and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri. Thank <laughs> you.